Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Saturday the 22nd of August 1896. That was the day that the Australian public went to the movies for the first time, and it happened at Melbourne's Opera House just nine months after the French Lumiere brothers got La Punters to pay to see moving pictures in Paris. Moving photographic pictures had started a quarter of a century earlier with English-American chap Edward Maybridge, a camera enthusiast and inventor. His most famous project, which he started in 1872, set out to make a series of photos of a galloping horse, in part to answer the age-old question of whether all four hooves left the ground. Spoiler alert, they do. Edward's project took six years, and in true movie mogul tradition, he went hugely over budget. His production was also interrupted in 1874-1875 by the slight matter of Edward murdering his wife's lover, who was a theatre reviewer no less, and having to go through the inconvenience of getting a jury to acquit him so he could get on with making the world's first moving picture. Edward did it, and his sequence of photos added up to a three-second sequence called The Horse in Motion, which showed just that when viewed through a gizmo he called the Zoopraxiscope. Next up in the proto-movie game was French fellow Louis Le Prince. His 1888 round hay garden scene, a few seconds of Victorian folks walking on a lawn, is the earliest surviving motion recorded on actual film. Louis Le Prince vanished, never to be seen again when on his way from Dijon to Paris in 1890, shortly before he was due to unveil his new invention, the movie camera. I'm not sure why Dan Brown hasn't written about that one. Louis Le Prince's disappearance left American inventor Thomas Edison to be credited as the father of the movies. The Wizard of Menlo Park, as he was known, first made the experimental Monkey Shine series in 1889 to 1890. Then, in 1891, he came up with Dixon Greeting. This was the first publicly exhibited film. It was shown at a ladies' club. And what they saw was a three-second sequence in which Thomas Edison's employee, William Dixon, appeared out of the darkness and flourished a straw hat. Thomas Edison made a lot more such actuality shorts as they were known, including a flexing strongman, the real-life Annie Oakley firing her rifle, a beauty doing a butterfly dance, and recreations of the beheading of Mary Queen of Scots and the immolation of Joan of Arc. Yet, it was the French Lumiere brothers who wowed the paying public for the first time with moving pictures on the 28th of December 1895. They presented a 10-subject program of actuality footage, each bit going for 50 seconds and including such scenes as workers leaving a factory and a baby being fed. So the main competition in this new novelty market was between Thomas Edison and the Lumieres. The first moving picture machine to reach Australian shores was Thomas Edison's kinetoscope. 
with a parlour of these gadgets opened in Sydney in November 1894. How it worked was you'd pop a coin into the machine slot and peer into its eyepiece to watch one of Edison's greatest hits. You might get a man sneezing after snorting snuff, a couple of men boxing, or even a pair of boxing cats. If it sounds like yoldy TikTok, you're not wrong, right down to the fact that this was meant for one viewer at a time. Australians knew about Edison's competition, the big screen cinematograph, which after that first demonstration had been showing moving pictures all over France, including the brothers' most famous flick of a train arriving at a station. Melbourne's Weekly Times newspaper on the 18th of April 1896 explained it was a, quote, contrivance by means of which a real scene of life and movement may be reproduced before an assemblage of spectators in a moving, animated, life-size picture. What the phonograph does for the ear, the cinematograph does, and more, for the eye. While Sydney Siders had been the first Australians to enjoy Edison's kinetoscope individually, it was to be Melbournians who'd enjoy the cinematograph first collectively. And the magic of the moving pictures was brought to the southern capital by a moving American magician. His name was Carl Hertz and he'd toured Australia about four years earlier. This time, before leaving London on a tour of South America and Australia, Carl Hertz had picked up a cinematograph in London and obtained the rights from the Lumieres to use it to exhibit their films. Carl Hertz was being brought to Australia by Harry Rickards, an English-born actor, comedian, singer and theatre owner who founded the Tivoli in Sydney before taking over Melbourne's Opera House. Carl Hertz was to tour Melbourne first and his show opened on Saturday the 15th of August, but when it opened, it opened without the cinematograph, the presence of which hadn't been announced yet to the public. So, for the first few days, audiences thrilled to Carl Hertz's magic act, in which he made a woman disappear, and enjoyed the associated variety program that featured comedians, excerpts from a play, a saucy for the time dancer, and a big lady doing a high wire act. Carl Hertz and Harry Rickards cannily kept their machine in reserve until they could assemble journalists for, what else, a preview screening after the regular Monday night show. The press reps' write-ups and newspaper ads would build anticipation for the first public display of big screen moving images the following Saturday, the 22nd of August, 1896. Ads called the cinematograph, quote, the sensation of the 19th century and the most startling scientific marvel of the age. While readers could be forgiven for thinking this was typical showbiz ballyhoo, they would have been more trusting of the reviews that came out of that press preview with these write-ups trying to explain the technology while also finding the words to describe what they'd seen. Table Talk said, quote, It is the kinetoscope on an extended scale, in one sense, combined with all the glory of the limelight view. By limelight view, they meant still image lantern shows, which were pretty much slides that big audiences could enjoy together. Table Talk continued, quote, the action of the figures is not less natural than the effect of a storm at sea. As a novelty, the cinematograph is the smartest and most up-to-date process yet invented for picture views. 
The Weekly Times said, In principle, it is the kinetoscope of Mr. Edison. In practice, it is a marvellous improvement upon it. Life-size figures and pictures, true to nature, are shown upon the canvas. A couple of scenes from a comical trilby called forth much laughter, and scenes of London streets and bridges with crowds of traffic, omnibuses moving rapidly, handsome cabs dashing along speedily, fairly brought down the English part of the house. Of the reviews, the most prescient in terms of foreseeing the medium's implications and in demonstrating that, from the outset, critics would find fault came in Melbourne newspaper Freelance. It said the cinematograph was, quote, a weird and wonderful machine that deserves a weird and wonderful name. Under the charge of Carl Hertz, it turned a white screen into various different scenes, occupied appropriately by ballet dancers, pugilists, nurses, gallant militaires, and various other things of joy. These figures were life-size and moved and seemed to have a being. So far, it sounded like a five-star review. Then came this. The action was a little slow, but capable of amendment. When a few slight defects are obliterated and the machine worked for the public, it should prove one of Ricard's greatest draws. Indeed, with it and the phonograph, a manager will be able to give a whole variety show, carrying it in a box and saving all wages. Alas, a bad time is coming for prose. On Saturday the 22nd of August, Melburnians got to see for themselves and they were knocked out. Here on the screen was a dancer moving as in life. A scene of the sea, tinted blue, appeared so lifelike that an audience member said she wanted to jump in. But the highlight was undoubtedly London Bridge, coming alive for audiences who considered themselves British, even though many of them, if not most, had never been to Mother England. On the following Monday, the 24th of August, The Age reviewed the public performance, saying scenes of amazing realism with all the characteristics of actual moving life had produced from the audience a storm of applause. The Age also noted that unlike live theatre, the cinematograph didn't pause for applause and didn't offer any encores. Not that Melburnians cared. People flocked to the Opera House. Newspapers advised that those who hoped to see the cinematograph should book early, and in fact, they should book twice to fully appreciate the experience because one was sure on first attendance to be distracted by all the applause, cheers, and laughter. Carl Hertz's Melbourne season was due to end on the 3rd of September, but it was extended two weeks and matinees were added to meet public demand. But the show had to come to an end. Carl Hertz and his troupe were due in Sydney for a season at the Tivoli to do their acts and show their flicks. So they left after a final show in Melbourne on the 17th of September. But this was the thing. While the magician went, the movie stayed. Harry Rickards had somehow managed to secure a second cinematograph. And he'd secured fresh filmic scenes, including a horse race and views of a popular South African entertainer. Freelancer's writer had been right. This was an entertainment where the machine and the movies fed into it were more important than any showman cranking the handle. That same month, another Lumiere agent, Maria Sestier, arrived on Australian shores. While he was here to show Lumiere films, he'd also come to make them. And we'll delve into that in another episode of Australia on This Day. 
I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on this day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.